Thank you for listening to our podcast. Church at the Well is a community practicing the way of Jesus and thirsting for the life he gives. Good morning, friends. It's good to be with you this morning. Um, I have a question. You don't need to answer this aloud. How do you feel when your best friend or a close family member forgets your birthday? Uh, Or let's say you have an important presentation you're giving with another presenter and they show up late to the presentation. Or a relative posts an angry political comment on your uh, social media page. Or you're just driving down the road and the person behind you starts tailgating you and when they finally pass, they punch the horn loud and long and they give you the finger. Well, I'd like to title my sermon today, Love is Not Easily Offended. Love is not easily offended. Today we're continuing in our sermon series on the life of King David. And King David is in a very low uh, part of his life right now. You see, his oldest son, Absalom, has rejected David and is actually seeking to usurp the throne. So this is insurrection. And so David is fleeing Jerusalem. He's fleeing with his loyal men. And it is a bad day for David. It's a bad day. But things are actually about to get a little bit worse. They're about to get a little bit worse because of a man named Shimei. And Shimei is a relative of Saul. Saul was the previous king. Um, And and Shimei is just this guy who shows up and begins cursing David to no end and throwing rocks at him as he's retreating uh, from Jerusalem. So let's read um, in 2 Samuel 16, uh, verses 5 through 8. As King David approached Bahurim, A man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shimei, son of Gera. And he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left. As he cursed, Shimei said, Get out, get out, you murderer, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son, Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a murderer. Wow. These are some pretty strong words, aren't they? He uses words like scoundrel. Now, scoundrel doesn't sound that strong in English. It's almost endearing to call somebody a little scoundrel, right? But in, 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 in the Hebrew, the original uh, would, have been, would have been translated to something more like son of Belial, which Belial is a reference to the evil ones. So this is kind of like saying son of Satan or child of the devil. This is really strong language. Um, and so um, Shimei is also throwing rocks at David. Um, and, and, and this is kind of a picture of a, of a, it's a visual curse, right? Because how were people executed in this, in this era, in this time? It was often by stoning. And so essentially Shimei is saying, David, you deserve to be stoned. May stoning be your fate. So what are we to make of these accusations? How are we to think of them? Are they accurate? Well, the answer is No. And yes, no, they are not accurate because David didn't actually shed the blood of Saul and his household. 
In fact, you may recall that on several dramatic occasions, David actually spared Saul's life, even though Saul was his arch enemy and Saul had made attempts on David's life. But David spared Saul's life when he had the perfect opportunity to slay him. Not once, but twice. Now, some of Saul's sons did actually die by the hands of David's men, but not by David's command. And in fact, when David heard about that, he punished those men severely. So, What are we to make of these accusations? Well, Shimei misses the mark here, right? He didn't get his facts straight. David did not have the blood of Saul on his hands. These are false accusations. But Shimei's accusing David uh, of these things was not entirely inaccurate because, you see, Shimei called David a murderer, and indeed, that was true. David, David had murdered a man named Uriah. Do you remember Uriah? Right? You may recall that David had had an affair and had an affair with a woman named Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. And when Bathsheba became pregnant in order to hide things, David had Uriah placed on the front lines in battle with hopes that he would be killed. And in fact, he was killed. And so Uriah's blood is very much on David's hands. And so when Shimei accuses David of being a murderer, he's actually right. David was guilty as charged. Now, let's look at how David responds to Shimei. We're going to pick up in verse 9 and read through verse 14. Then Abishai, Abishai is like David's general here. Abishai, son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. But the king said, What does this have to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord said to him, curse David, who can ask, why do you do this? David then said to Abishai and all his officials, my son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. So it may be that the Lord will look upon my misery, this is David saying, speaking, and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. So David and his men continued along the road while Shimei was going along the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went and throwing stones at him and showering him with dirt. Shimei's following him. He's harassing him. Uh, the king and all the people with him arrived at their destination exhausted, and there he refreshed himself. So what happens here? David's general, Abishai, basically says, he, well, he wants to cut off Shimei's head for cursing David the king, but David restrains him. Leave him alone, David says. And, and so Shimei just keeps cursing and following and harassing um, as David and his men retreat. David seems to think somehow that maybe God has allowed this for a reason, but he doesn't know why. But still, maybe God's up to something. And so uh, David refuses to take vengeance into his own hands. Now, this is kind of surprising that David spares Shimei so easily here because David is not a man who has been known to be uh, quite this merciful, right? I'm thinking about the story of Nabal. I don't know how many of you were uh, at the um, at higher ground when Adam preached a wonderful sermon on, on, on Nabal and the story of good counsel. Um, but 
what happened was um, when David and his men were wandering in the wilderness, they sent word to this man named Nabal, and they said, would you help us out? Would you be so kind as to provide a few provisions for us while we're wandering here in this area near where you are? And, and Nabal responds. He sends uh, David's men back, and he says, he gives the word, who is this man David? Who does he think he is? Why should I share my bread and my water and the meat that I have slaughtered for my sheep shearers with him? Well, David's honor was so sorely offended and so wounded by uh, Nabal and his uh, dishonorable remarks toward um, David that David went ballistic. Uh, he fixated on killing Nabal. He hatched a plan to slay Nabal in his tent in the middle of the night. Unfortunately, um, he was intercepted by the wise counsel of Nabal's wife, Abigail. Um, and so fast forward or com coming back to our passage today... Does David respond to Shimei the way he responded to Nabal? No, very differently. Why is that? David is a different man now. He's a different man. He's been strongly dishonored to his face. There are rocks flying, but David doesn't seem phased, does he? He's not making a big deal about this. He spares Shimei without anger, without vengeance. He doesn't even, by the way, say a word at all to Shimei. He doesn't address him at all. He moves his men on. Well, what explains David's very different response here? I think this. I think a lot of hard things had happened in David's life uh, since his encounter with Nabal. A lot of hard things. And David is a broken man. And in his brokenness, David has surrendered himself and he surrendered his circumstances entirely to God. And, and Adam preached about that last week, about David's surrendering and our surrendering our circumstances and our lives to God. No longer is David as easily offended as he once would have been, right? Um, Rich Velotis, the author and uh, pastor, says, when you're poor in spirit, there's nothing to protect, right? And so for David, there's no longer, in a sense, anything for him to protect. So much has been taken away from him, right? And what hasn't been taken away from him, he has now surrendered to God. And so really, what could offend David now? What could offend him now? Well, I want us to take a step back from the story now, and I want us to talk for a little while about offense, because we navigate every day, I think, we navigate a gauntlet of possible offenses, right? Especially the little kind, like the kind I mentioned at the beginning, right? Uh, the annoying kind, right? I believe that actually these are things that God is allowing often in our lives and using in countless ways um, to, he's using them in the school of transformation that we are all enrolled in as followers of Christ, you're at the end of a very long grocery line, at the end of your very long day, and you are hungry, and you get to the cashier, and she puts the closed sign up and says, sorry, and so you have to go back to another line, and nobody just sees that you've been waiting longer than they have, and nobody lets you go in front of them, and you have to wait, right? A friend borrows something that's valuable to you, but they don't treat it as valuable. Maybe it gets broken or lost, and they don't pay you back. Or, or, or buy a new one for you or whatever. A friend or a relative, they say that they're going to invite you up to their cabin for a weekend in the summer uh, so that you can get away and have, and have some fun. And, and, and then you get really excited about this. You're looking forward to it, but the invitation never comes. 
Here's a definition of offense. Offense is a feeling that is triggered by a blow to a person's honor because it contradicts a person's self-concept and identity. It's an, an offense is a wound, an injury to the soul. It's an attack to something even more important than the integrity of our body, our image, our image. It's an attack on our image. Now, there's this very one small but important word that can go a long way in helping us understand how offense works, and it's the word take. You see, offense doesn't just happen to us, right? We take offense. There's some choice involved. We have agency in the matter. Now, psychologists have actually broken down the process of taking offense into three steps, three very distinct stages, and I want to share them with you here. I don't share these with us so that we can all become like experts on how these work. It's actually quite a bit beyond my, <laughs> um, you know, non, I'm not a psychologist, but I share these because I want us to see that the idea of taking offense is actually a process. It's a sequence. It's a progression. The first stage is that the offended person identifies the cause of the offense, right? Like, what, what just happened? Did, did that person, and then they interpret, you know, they, they develop some sort of interpretation. Did, did that person realize what they just did, right? Uh, did they mean that? <laughs> the offended person attempts to determine the intensity of the feeling of the offense, right? Is this something just to brush off with a joke or... Am I really hurt right now? Uh, did that person, you know, did they just say that as a joke? Or did they, did they really, was that like a, a stab at, at my honor? Um, and then finally, the offended person has some sort of a reaction to the offense, right? What am I, I going to do? What am I going to do? How am I going to respond? Now, let's hang out with that third stage for just a moment um, because that's such a critical stage, isn't it, right? It's a critical stage. It's the stage where things can go well or they can go very poorly, depending on how we react or whether we react. Uh, and so uh, to talk about this stage, we, have to, we, we need another definition, and that's the definition of the word react, react. So to react, um, this is what I mean when I use the word react, is to take action back at something, usually quickly, uh, instinctively, without giving time to evaluate, thinking, without giving time to think or uh, analyze the situation, right? Often reacting is happening out of anger or anxiety or fear. And so when something happens to us and we uh, are, are feeling offended, we have a decision to make, to react or not to react. That's the question. So when David took offense at Nabal, what did he do? He reacted to Nabal, right? He angrily made a plan to kill Nabal without thinking things through. Well, what does David do in the encounter he has with Shimei? He doesn't react, right? He could have reacted, right? David could have called out Shimei on those false accusations. He could have cursed Shimei back to his face with some choice words of his own. Right? He could have given the green light for Shimei's uh, spontaneous execution at the hands of Abishai. But what does David do? He holds back. David doesn't want to get ahead of himself. David doesn't want to needlessly add to the blood that's already on his hands. And David doesn't want to do something he's going to regret. 
he doesn't want to play God here in this situation. He wants to let God do whatever God is doing. He doesn't know what God is doing, but he's not going to pretend to be God in this situation. So David refuses to be reactive. Now, the fact that David doesn't react, he refuses to be reactive, that doesn't mean he didn't actually respond. I want to make a differentiation here between reacting to something and responding to something because they're actually two different things, right? And so let's look at a definition for to respond. To respond is to answer back. Yes, it's like reacting. You answer back, but thoughtfully, deliberately, taking time to evaluate the situation and then speaking or acting out of a place of calm, out of a place of security. And I would say as Christians, out of a place of love, right? Because we are called to love our enemy. So David doesn't react in this situation with Shimei, but he does respond. His response is actually not to react. Does that make sense? His response is not to react, uh, to to, um, not to engage Shimei, to not to allow him to be killed and not to um, react. So a few months ago, I came across something that stopped me in my tracks, and it gave me a really deep sense of conviction. I was reading about the true self and the false self. These are concepts that I've, I've mentioned once before, or, or at least once before. These are concepts that, that come out of the idea uh, that Paul talks about operating in the spirit as opposed to the flesh or being in Christ. So I was reading about the true self and the false self. Let me just define those really quickly, and then I'll tell you what stopped me in my tracks. So the true self... Um, is, and this is uh, Rich Velotis's, um definition from his book, Good, Beautiful, and Kind. It's a place within us where we, have, we are found securely wrapped in God's love. We have no need to project or protect. Right? It's the part of us that's hidden in Christ, completely safe in God. That's the true self. The false self is the part of us that needs to look good, needs to pretend, needs to project an image, and needs to protect our fragile ego, right? And we all have this. We all have a true self and, and a false self. So here's what stopped me in my tracks. I came across this quote by the Catholic author um, and writer um, and priest Richard Rohr. And Richard Rohr says, you can tell when you're operating in your false self. You can tell when the false self takes over because you become easily offended. You're offended about every three minutes, Anyone relate? <laughs> um, when I read that, I was like, uh-oh, <laughs> that's me. <laughs> that's me. Uh, I, I get offended by little things. I get offended by stupid things, really stupid things. Here's one of the stupid things that I'm not proud to say I was offended by. So when I was 10 years old uh, and 11, my family lived in Scotland. Um, and we embraced the culture of Scotland, and we lived uh, really a, a life that was as Scottish as we could while we were in Scotland, except for one thing, we loved our American breakfast cereal. Um, and so um, at some point that year, I started to become really annoyed by the way that someone in my family slurped their cereal. I became so annoyed that I just couldn't stand it any longer, and I began to refuse to eat breakfast in the same room with them. Um, I would go into the hall and I would sit on the stairway and hold my bowl in my hand and I would eat breakfast alone <laughs> because it was I refused to eat breakfast among those who slurped. <sighs> Maybe some of you can relate. Um, 
This went on for a long time, longer than I care to admit. Now, even though I don't do that now, I'm over it, um, in so many little ways, I still do, right? I let something little about someone or the way they do something offend me. I, I think that this actually happens a lot in families, right? Because we identify so closely with our family members, right? And so naturally, we're all the more offended or irritated, right? When the things that they do fail to meet with our sense of the way things should be, right? And I think that that's a clue here to what's going on in this dynamic. That phrase, the way things should be, right? It's as if I let myself be offended because I want the world to be perfectly one way, perfectly my way, when it can't and it never will be. Um, and so my protest was so laughable, right? Eating my uh, cereal on the stairs, so pitiful, so puerile, that really it only ends up reflecting back on me, right? <laughs> um, you see, the fact that I had such a big problem with slurping says a whole lot more about me than the person who's, you know, slurping. The irony of the situation here is that it isn't the world that's imperfect, it's me. <laughs> now, I know this is a totally silly example, but I trust you get the idea. I, I share this example, the silly example, because Jesus says that when we're faithful with little things, we will be faithful with larger things, right? And so I, I wonder if that applies to how we take offense, right? Uh, if we are faithful in how we respond to the little offenses, will we not then be faithful in how we respond to the larger offenses? Back to Richard Rohr. So Richard Rohr, who says that the false self is easily offended about every three minutes, also says the true self is actually unoffendable. The true self is actually unoffendable. I don't know if that's true. I don't know. I want, I, I don't know. I don't know what to think of that. I've been chewing on that. Could it be true? It's been convicting me. God has been actually, I think, really using that idea um, and that question that I have in my mind, could that be true? Is that true? Because it convicts me. And it makes me think, could I be someone who so operates out of my security in Christ that I'm perfectly okay with the imperfections around me? Can I be like David and refrain from reacting to the shimmy eyes in my life? Can I be someone whose identity is so wrapped up in God's love that I no longer feel the need to take offense? The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable. And it keeps no record of being wronged. Another translation of that last part, verse 6, is love is not easily angered. And the third translation, which I've borrowed for the title of my sermon, love is not easily offended. Now, the last thing that I want you to do when you leave this room today is to think that because we are called to have a love that is not easily offended, we're meant to be doormats, right? That is not the case. The people of God are to be a people who care deeply about justice, 
We are to be a people who hold good boundaries, healthy boundaries, for the sake of others and ourselves, right? We are a people, we're called to be a people who call out abuse, who resist racism and bigotry of all kinds. We're to be a people who care about the rights of others. We are to be a people who stand up for the vulnerable and those who don't have a voice. But here's the paradox. Sometimes, just sometimes, love looks like not reacting when a hurtful word is spoken in your direction. Sometimes love looks like overlooking another person's faults or bearing another person's weakness. Sometimes it looks like letting that false accusation just roll off your back. And sometimes if that accusation is true, it means like, it looks like calmly agreeing with it and moving on. As humans, we live in a fallen world and reacting to things is our native language, right? Uh, it's our native body language. It's our native, it's our native language. Taking offense is our human default. But I believe that when we're operating out of our true selves, when we are secure in the love of Christ, when we truly know our belovedness in him, we have another option, right? We have the freedom not to take offense. We no longer have to pretend or project in order to protect our fragile ego. We can let Christ absorb the offense for us. And I think that's the key. We can let Christ absorb the offense for us. You see, that's what he did when he died on the cross. Christ absorbed every offense, yours and mine and David's and Shimei's and the offenses of all of the Shimei's in our lives. When Pontius Pilate was mocking Jesus, when he was facetious with Jesus, Jesus was silent as a lamb. And when Jesus' executioners, when the Romans, uh, the soldiers, were nailing his hands and his feet to a wooden cross, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What was Jesus doing here? He was absorbing their offenses. And he was absorbing our offenses, too. Today, you may notice we'll be taking communion. Um, here at the table, when we take communion, we taste Jesus' forgiveness, right? The bread of his cruciform love, the, the fruit of the vine, which represents his sacrifice, the pouring out of his life for us and for the world. And here at the table, he takes our offenses. Nothing now stands between us and his love. So let's pray. And then I will give us some instruction for taking communion. Heavenly Father, we confess that we are people who are quick to take offense. Oh Lord, our love is very small. But you have expanded our hearts. You have given us the power to forgive because you have forgiven us, because you have loved us perfectly and made us new by your love. Make us new again today or for the first time. Make us a people who know ourselves to be loved by you, who know ourselves to be secure 
in you, O Lord. Make us a people who live out of our true selves, filled with a love that is not easily offended. Help us to respond and not to react when we're offended. Help us to grow, O Lord, from the shimmies that we encounter in our lives, O Lord. Let us grow from them deep in our hearts that we might actually learn to love them. And strengthen us in your grace, O Lord, that we might become more and more like you. Thank you, O Lord Jesus, for your sacrifice for us. Thank you for absorbing our offenses and the offenses of the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're listening to the official podcast of Church of the Well in Burlington, Vermont. For more information about Church of the Well, including gathering time and location, events, and how you can financially support the podcast, please visit us online at www.wellchurchvt.com.